Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robus, and this is the show where we do get a real balance between perspectives on the right, on the left, and coming kind of down the center. I am joined, as always, by our panel of former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. Folks, let's pick up where we left off last week. Last week, our conversation was focused largely on this question of a vibe shift and whether it was just that, only vibes. Amy Walter, the noted political analyst, had written an influential article where she questioned, is this just a sense that Democrats are feeling a little bit better because the news hasn't been so oppressively bad for them? Or can we measure a real impact that we can project forward into the midterm elections that says, look, things are actually going to be better for Democrats than we've been saying for much of the last year? Since we did that show, a couple of things have happened. First, we focused heavily on that theme in Beyond Politics over the course of last week. We had Eliza Astro, the noted Democratic political analyst on our show, and we asked her the vibe shift question. And then we had perhaps the top Republican pollster working out there today, Whit Ayers, and we asked him. And the verdict seems to be in that, yes, unequivocally, things are going better for Democrats, but the jury is very much out on whether this momentum will carry through to the midterms and how much of an impact it will have. The other thing that happened is that all of the political race raiders have weighed in in the last week since we did that last show. The Cook political report, Larry Sabato's crystal ball, um, Rothenberg, and they've all moved their race ratings in Democrats direction. They're now projecting at least a 50-50 chance of the Democrats retaining the U.S. Senate and a loss of seats in the House and probably losing the House, but much less of a loss of seats. So, Alicia, you have been kind of churning all morning through all of this information, all of these changes. What did you make of it? Has your thinking changed at all since our discussion last week? What stood out to you about all of the subsequent analysis? Well, you know, it's interesting because what these people do, the Cook Political Report and the others that you mentioned, is they don't just look at the country as a whole. They literally look at district by district and then the way which which direction things are going to go. That's a very different analysis than what's the vibe of the country. Right. Mm. But a lot of these states for the last couple months, you know, number one, the economy and inflation still is the number one issue when people are polled uh, and, and that favors Republicans. But they've also been dealing with, and I think this is a huge factor and good for Republicans that it'll be over within the next two months. What we've been seeing in a lot of these states is Republican primaries going on. And the Republicans in these states are running so far to the right, so far, you know, they're running on Donald Trump support. And that's not, as we've discussed here before on many topics, they're not talking about what Americans are talking about. And therefore, there's just this kind of bland taste in people's mouths for Republicans in these various states right now for that reason. Um, that being said, two months is a really long time away and the dynamics could shift. And, you know, 
when what's going to happen in November is going to reflect where we are as a country at that time. Are we still infighting on the Republican side about Donald Trump? If we are, Republicans aren't going to fare well in certain districts in the country that they should. Or are we going back to being focused on the economy? If we go back and be focused on the economy, which most families actually are, we would just like those who want to be our leaders to do the same thing. Uh, then I think it, it could favor Republicans. So, you know, the jury's still out. Two months is a long time. It depends where the conversation goes. Yeah, I like to just build on what you're saying, because it really vibes with sort of the way I'm seeing this right now. And then I do want to turn to you, Paul. There's there's a quote attributed to Sun Tzu, the, the art of war author, that if you know yourself, but you don't know your enemy, you've only won half the battle. And if you know your enemy, but not yourself, you've only won half the battle. And if you know your enemy and yourself, but you don't know the terrain that you're fighting on, you've only won half the battle. Now, Sun Tzu was not a mathematician because that's three halves. That is more than a whole. <laughs> People, if you ever hear someone refer to giving 110%. Oh, that's my pet peeve. Yeah. Call shenanigans. Call shenanigans. You cannot have more than 100%. Any athlete who says, I'm giving 200%, it's like, no, remedial math. But anyway, regardless of the math problem we have here, I think the point is if you can choose what you're fighting over, then you are winning at least half the battle. And Alicia, I think you're right. I think there are numbers that back up what you're saying, which is that over the last two months, the discussion has been about the news that people generally imbibe has been about Trump, January 6th, Trump problems, Trump and Trump. And that has decreased the focus on inflation and the economy. And we saw that reflected in that NBC News poll that we talked about last week, where voters said that their number one issue on their mind now, surpassing the economy and inflation, was now threats to democracy. And in a way, it doesn't matter if that is made up of Republicans or Democrats. The point is the shift of the terrain, the what, where are the grounds that we're fighting it out? If people are more focused on any issue other than inflation, that probably advantages Democrats. And of course, the other thing, and this is something that back to Amy Walter that she pointed out, is that it's true that the president is still underwater in terms of his approval, but Donald Trump is still a lot more polarizing. Donald Trump's net favorable ratings are twice as bad as Joe Biden's, minus 18 versus minus eight. And you're seeing that in swing states like Arizona, where Trump's net favorable is minus 20 versus Biden's minus 10. Wisconsin, where Biden's net favorable is minus six, Trump's is minus 10. So state after swing state, Donald Trump is far more negatively viewed. So basically, if we're talking about Trump, Democrats are winning. If we're talking about inflation, Democrats are losing. The final point of evidence that I bring in is that we're beginning to see an uptick in Biden's approval, and it's probably linked to the string of legislative successes and relatively better news that Democrats have gone through in recent months. His approval rating is up to 44 or 45%, according to Gallup and CBS News, respectively. Each of those is an increase of several points. In Gallup's case, it's up six points over the last month, month and a half. And those are notable. Again, he's still underwater, but there's a huge difference between 45% and 40% in terms of what you can expect electorally. All right. 
I have now gotten my screed out. I'm agreeing with Alicia. Paul, I want to turn this into kind of a pointed question to you based on your experience as a member of Congress, because one of the most difficult things for a majority in the House to manage is a slim majority. Now, you served in Congress under Nancy Pelosi as speaker, and you were part of relatively strong Democratic majorities. In the last two years, Nancy Pelosi has been dealing with a razor thin majority. So now that the race ratings for the U.S. House have begun to shift, it suggests that if we do have a flip in the House, instead of having a big majority, Kevin McCarthy, who would probably be the speaker under a Republican House, might have a relatively thin majority. What are the implications of that? Why is that something significant to pay attention to? Uh, Well, first of all, I want to say to our listeners that if my voice sounds nutty, it's because I'm 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 lucky to be podcasting today. And that's the Um, only reason that's the only reason that your voice might sound nutty. That's right. Otherwise, it's just me being nutty. But, you know, I had the I had the luxury uh, when I was in Congress of of being able to go to Steny Hoyer um, and say, Steny, um, I really need some slack on this vote. I need some slack on this vote because here's what's going on back home. And it's going to it it would really hurt um, if I take uh, take a different vote. And he'd count up the votes and um, he'd say, OK, you've got some slack here. Do what you need to do. There were other times where I was whipped really heavily. Um, we need you on this vote. We're having trouble um, getting all the votes. Uh, I know it's a tough one for you, but we really need you on it. So when you've got a slim majority and whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, it becomes an awful it becomes a lot of work um, for uh, the leader um, uh, and or speaker in this case, if it's McCarthy, to keep his troops in line. Um, because um, you you don't have any slack on the votes. You need every vote for your legislative agenda um, or your obstructionist agenda, depending on depending on depending on 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 how it works. You just you need all the votes, so you you're you're you you can't give slack to members. Now, the one thing I will say is there's a cultural difference that I perceived then, and I and I and 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 is less significant now, which is Democrats uh, were like herding cats; Republicans were easier to keep in line. Well, and just to kind of give a specific example of this just just so our listeners kind of follow what you're what you're referring to i I remember an example in the senate it's a little different because senators can bring up all kinds of amendments to to bills all the time and and you can get forced into some really tricky votes in the house there are fewer opportunities to do that but there are still opportunities the party that that is in the minority has ways to force the majority party to take tough votes. And when you were serving, there were votes that Republicans would set up all the time on trap issues around immigration. And at the time, it was really hot. Could you take people from the battlefield in Afghanistan, for example, and bring them to Guantanamo Bay? That was the kind of thing that would. And and I remember 
getting calls when I was your chief of staff, Paul, I'm getting calls from the leader's office or the whip's office, uh, uh, Jim Clyburn's office saying, where is your boss on this? We may need him. And then we had to sit around and talk about here's a vote. How do you feel about it as a policy? And then what are the political implications of this? How is this going to play back home? And I think one of the ramifications of what you're saying, Paul, is that when you're in a slim majority, that means that there are more and more opportunities for the other party to hang tough votes on the most vulnerable members of the majority. And so if you're in a swing district like you always were, then you're you're just going to be called upon more and more times by your majority to take those tough votes so that they can win on them and so that their bills don't get sunk. And that just gives the other party, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The narrower the majority is, the more tough votes swing seat members have to take. Is that, I mean, that's that's basically the upshot that you're pointing to. Correct. I mean, that that's just the way it works. And and you know, frankly, it sounds a little bit at odds with going to Congress just to serve your constituents and thinking about doing, you know, you want to do what's right. And so sometimes there were very tough decisions um, to make about whether or not what was right uh, was seen as helping your party in this case take a tough vote or what was right was something you may or may not have totally, totally agreed with. The the one thing that I will say to people who um, who uh, see Congress as a black and, uh, you know, as public service and taking votes as black and white, never. It was the only thing that things that were ever black and white were naming post offices. Everything else, everything else were shades of gray. Well, you know, one of the things that I remember always telling you and other members of Congress that I work for is I think when you get into an electoral position like that, when you're in public service in an elected role, you have to decide what are the core issues that you really care about, that you're willing to fall on your sword for. For you, that issue was health care. You knew full well that voting for the Affordable Care Act was probably going to kill you in the next election which it did. And you said that this is an issue that I'm willing to fall on my political sword for everything else. You have to be willing to at least consider the political implications. You need to be somewhat flexible because otherwise you will be out of office in 30 seconds. And so right. I agree with you. It, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And I think the upshot of this is where we are right now with a narrower win, still projecting a win for, for Republicans in the House will have practical implications, not just for what they're able to get done, but also for 2024 and how tough of a road it will be for those members to get reelected. Alicia, anything you'd like to add on this in terms of, you know, the dynamics of a Republican House majority? Well, I mean, what's significant is if we have a House majority of Republicans and um, the Senate goes the way some of these political forecasters are predicting, then we're going to have a gridlock and literally thing will get done in two years. We are so politically divided at this point that Republicans in the House will make sure to block everything that comes out of the Senate and Democrats in the Senate will make sure to block anything that comes out of the House. So, you know, I, I think that's an unfortunate reality we may be facing if these political forecasters are accurate. Well, I will say, just because that's so downbeat, 
that we have managed to pass <laughs> some bipartisan stuff in the last few months, including the infrastructure bill and the gun bill and the veterans toxic burn pits bill. And so, look, hope springs eternal. But, you know, as they say, pray for miracles, but plant cabbages. Um, <laughs> let's let's turn a little bit then. If we all agree that there's definitely some momentum for Democrats, there's something real and tangible going on that we can see in the polling numbers and that we're picking up in the races. Is it possible that Democrats did themselves some further good or some further harm this past week when President Biden decided to forgive up to $10,000 per borrower of student loan debt? This was obviously a politically controversial decision that he kept punting on over and over again. Paul, I want to turn to you first and just a warning that we'll probably end up having to bridge this across the commercial break. No problem. What did you make of the substantive and the political case for doing this? Did Joe Biden get this right? I don't know that he ever could get it right. The left would never be happy because he'd never do enough. He he was clear in the debates that he wasn't all that all that fond of the idea. Uh, the right was going to savage him. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The left is unhappy. The right is savaging, savaging him. Twitter is going crazy. The Internet has lit up with more crazy stuff than uh, we even talk about on the show. I mean, it's just like gone off the rails in the end. Um, I, I understand. I, frankly, I understand all the arguments. There are some people who feel like, well, why didn't I get my break? Why are you doing it now? And alone is alone. And on the other hand, uh, college costs are so high that it's really good to, to help people out. It's a popular issue with Democrats. And there are legions of stories about people who say, my life is saved. My life will be so much better because of this. And the Republicans are whining about it. Is it political? You bet. It was, in my view, a totally political move. Will it backfire? No. Will it help? No. I don't think it's going to be that significant. Alicia, I think it matters. And I think it's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Of. Can I say asinine on air? Well, you just did. You just okay. did. Isn't it? Uh, OK, come at me, FCC. <laughs> I came oh, out they of my might mouth actually went, come oh. at me. You know now what? Oh. Now Alicia, said, Alicia said a word. <laughs> uh, look, I, I want to because everyone's saying this is Republican versus Democrat. It's not. It was wholly political. And I think it was a, a complete mistake. Not that I want him to do well, but I even for his own party, I think it was a mistake. This is when the news broke. This is a text I received from a Democrat who's a friend who's a former elected official. Why is student loan debt so special that 10 grand gets canceled? How about a landscaper who borrows 60 grand to buy a truck and tools to do his business? Why isn't his debt forgiven? That is the real response from regular people out here. When the politicians aren't talking, when the workers are talking, when the people who are plumbers and electricians and mechanics and have to buy their own tools and paid for their own you know, trade schools the idea that a portion of their taxes, and I don't care if it's a penny, is going to someone who makes $124,000 a year to pay their student loans. And yes, I subscribe to all the arguments being made. You signed a contract, you got into a deal, you said you were going to pay your loans back, and now you're saying I shouldn't have to. There's a great article in the Washington Post on the 26th, and I urge people to read it. It really explains, and this is the Washington Post, 
all the problems with this, um, the problems with people now thinking that their debt will in the future be forgiven. Um, there's the head of the, I think it's the American Loan Association, College Loaning Association, who said she has seen in the last few years people taking on loan debt that they could never afford, but under the anticipation that it would be forgiven. People should look it up. It's called Students Don't Count on Loan Debt Forgiveness Ever Happening Again. And that's in the Washington Post. This expert in this also noted that over the past several years, she's noticed families are not taking into consideration the cost of where they're they're going to school or where their child is going to school because of loans and loan forgiveness anticipation. This is a major problem. It's a bad lesson and it may not happen again. And, and I don't understand, you know, like the example I gave. So you're, you're making 65 grand a year and $5 of your taxes every year are going to pay for a guy who's in his second year working at a law firm for 120 grand. It's not right. It's not fair. It won't earn him any votes because the people that would vote for him because of it, we're going to vote for him anyway. Uh, but it will actually change the minds of some independents and some soft Democrats. I'm going to take the last part of your point last. I want to put in the parking lot the question of the political impact. I want to agree with you, though, substantively. And look, I on this show, I kind of come down the center, but I'm obviously a Democrat as well. And I got to say, this is one where I just I strongly agree with you, Alicia, on substance. The, the thing that bothers me most, we did a show on this with Michelle Domino of the think tank Third Way several months ago, um, and she pointed out that President Biden before this had already done more than any president in history to forgive student loan debt, $17 billion worth. And that forgiveness had been highly targeted to people who had been ripped off by fraudulent for-profit universities and who were low income and who had no prospect of paying back their debt. If you've been ripped off, you should be compensated. If you have no prospect of paying back your debt, but you went, you went ahead and you, you, know, you took that risk because you're trying to better yourself, improve your income, and, you know, and in some way, the debt is, is far more than you could ever afford. I understand a helping hand for people who have been in that situation. The problem is that what we're talking about in this case is people who have great prospects of earning lots of money later in their career. Almost half of all student loan debt is held by individuals with graduate degrees including doctors and lawyers and MBA executives. And they borrowed because it was an investment in a high future income. Did the, did the risk not work out in some cases? Sure. But there is, in most cases, a floor under you. And I don't think that that is the group that needs the most help. Now, the White House came out and said that the cost of this would be $275 billion other analysts, including Jason Furman, the former Obama White House economic director, said, no, it's closer to $500 billion. So at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're transferring $500 billion from people who are relatively wealthy, because remember, for a married couple, this aid can go up to people, married couples who make up to $250,000. That's wealthy. And we're taking, we're taking $500 billion and transferring it from all of us to this one group. The final thing I'll say is that I made a case 
three years ago that the most moderate proposal that was being made in the Democratic presidential primary debate about loan debt was being made of all people by Bernie Sanders, who said we should focus loan debt forgiveness on medical debt, not student loan debt, medical debt. Why? Because we're all human. We all get sick. This cuts across races, genders, and income levels. The average level of debt is $682. And it's pulling down people's credit ratings, their ability to afford their cars, to get to their jobs. It's crushing people. And for people who point out that student loan debt is concentrated among Black borrowers and that this is to some extent a racial justice issue, I hear that and agree. I agree. Medical debt has the exact same or even greater of a tilt toward Black Americans. So if we want to pursue a a debt relief social justice agenda, let's focus there. So substantively, I'm 100% with you, Alicia. I just want to point out a couple of things. Number one, for the first time, probably in my life, I agree with Bernie Sanders, uh, that if you're going to focus on one of these, then it should be medical. Here's another reason. College is, at the end of the day, a choice. Getting cancer is not. And so why we're helping people that made a choice and signed a piece of paper that they would be responsible for it and not helping those. I I think medical debt is huge in this country. Um, I'm going to throw out another Democrat just to give props to the other side, which Paul, get your defibrillator ready. When I say this one, John, Paul's not sounding so good. Are you sure you want to (laughs) say you still there? (laughs) I I, I, I don't know. Okay. All right. right. Now now, Um, this is going to revive you. I'm going to revive you. John Kerry, when he was running for president back in the day, was right when he was one of the first major, major, major politicians of the modern time to talk about this need for medical debt forgiveness in certain situations, particularly with children. So I'm willing to have that discussion on the backs of taxpayers because people shouldn't die because they can't afford health care in the United States of America. So let's have a discussion there, but not on student loans. But I want to point out two other problems. We do have a problem with the cost of higher education in this country. It's insane. My parents were middle class people, middle, middle, not upper middle, middle, middle class people. They were able to pay for two kids to go to college and it wasn't easy. We ate they ate a lot of spaghetti, but they were able to do it. No middle class family can pay for two kids to go to college out of their own pocket nowadays. And that's 30 years ago. That's not 300 years ago. So the cost of higher education is obscene and it needs to be addressed. And the other thing we've got to do for 40 years, we've been telling every kid, you got to get a four-year degree. You got to get a four-year degree. So now we've got millions of people running around with 14th century Turkish art degrees and they live in Wyoming. And what the heck are you going to do with that? You're going to be a barista at Starbucks and not be able to pay back that student loan. And we don't have enough plumbers. We don't have enough electricians. We don't have enough mechanics. We need to help students focus on that. The trades are not only a reputable career to have, but quite lucrative compared to if you get a stupid four-year degree that is useless in America. So let me let me just let me agree with both of you and say, I I, I think you make valid points. And so in addition to the student uh, debt relief program, we should uh, put in a medical debt relief program. We should do more to help people get into the trades. We should, of course, invest in clean energy in order to grow new industries for people, uh, people to join. So I think what America needs is an all of the above policy. Why limit why, why limit ourselves? I agree with you. I think those are great ideas. Let's go for it. 
Well, the reason we have to limit ourselves is that economics fundamentally is the study of how we make decisions under constrained resources. We have to make choices. And I think the the point that we keep coming back to is that especially when we're worried about inflation, we can't just spend unlimited amounts on everything. We have to prioritize. So to me, this is the, the, the part that really bothers me the most is let's say we agreed with your point, Paul, which I actually kind of do in a way. Like there's clearly a segment of student loan debt relief that I agree with. It's the portion that Biden's already done. Again, if you were ripped off by ITT tech, which doesn't exist anymore, by the way, why? Because they were fraudulent, right? It was a Ponzi scheme. So if you were ripped off, you know, it, then I, I think it's reasonable. And you shouldn't go into bankruptcy for trying to, maybe you made a sensible choice, but it wasn't a degree that was as valuable as you thought it would be. I can see circumstances where this makes some economic sense. Let's not ruin people's lives economically for, for taking a risk. Let's encourage a little bit of risk taking in the world. But goodness gracious, what really bugs me about this is that we're not doing anything on the point that Alicia raised, which is the obscene cost of higher education, especially by elite colleges and universities. And since we're not doing anything about that, student debt is going to return to today's levels within four years, which means we're going to be right back where we started. We've now bailed out folks who have accrued student loan debt previously, but what about people who are going to in the next few years? They're going to be right back in the same boat. But let's get to the politics angle, because there was a really interesting article from Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, very conservative think tank, previous guest on our show, Great Ideas, actually a multiple time guest. Um, and and he, he's obviously a major conservative. And his argument is kind of a version of what we were saying before about what's happening overall in politics, which is... This should be an issue that Republicans are absolutely able to use and drive home as part of the midterms. This should be a core argument that we have in our politics. Is this the right policy or not? People should be making voting decisions based on how they feel about this. But his point is Republicans have been absolutely terrible at prosecuting this political case because they're so caught up in being the, pol the, the party of cultural grievance. And much of the conservative discussion today has become dominated by topics like Donald Trump, critical race theory, gender issues, and liberal bias in the media. And because they're so obsessed with that, they choose to fight out on that territory. They're missing this big political opportunity. Alicia, are Republicans fumbling the ball at the goal line? Look, yes, yes, we are. We're getting in culture wars. If we get into a cultural conversation in most districts in the country, we are going to lose. I have said this till I'm blue in the face and apparently I'm wrong. I'm not just everyone. I'm not wrong. <laughs> if we get into cultural wars in most districts, many districts in this country, we are going to lose. You know, Republicans can and should. And some are. I've seen some who are running excellent races in various places around the country focus on this. You can take the student loan debt issue and you can wheel it right into inflation in the economy, because the fact is and this is this is reality. This isn't perception. It is reality that while I'm struggling to pay my monthly bills. Well, I am worried about the day I have to turn on my heat in Washington. You guys are focused on giving a, a 25 year old 10 grand in relief from a college he shouldn't have taken a degree from. And why? Because 
That's all you can do is play politics. So you're playing politics right before a midterm election. You're passing legislation that will only get you votes and do nothing to actually better almost anybody in the country except a very few group, small group of people who $10,000 will even you know, take a chunk out of all their debt. And, and you can conflate the two issues that it is one and the same that Washington isn't talking about what we're talking about. They're solving problems that don't exist or solving things that are not a priority. That's how Republicans should frame it. It's all about the economy. It's all about messaging. And uh, yeah, I know they're talking about CRT or something else. I don't know. Well, on that on that note, that's a perfect transition to our regular segment as part of this show this week in Trump. We need a lead were, in like dun, 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 or something. Oh, you know what? We need theme music, but we it's got to be it's got to be a real bummer, like like circus clown music or like. <laughs> OK, all right. So, <laughs> boy, I don't even know where to start with this one. I, I Where I want to eventually land is Paul turning to you <laughs> in just a moment, because You have been, I think, very consistent as a former prosecutor and a former member of Congress in saying no one is above the law. The way we uphold the Constitution and the principles of our country is if Donald Trump committed crimes and there is sufficient evidence to prosecute those crimes, he should be indicted and prosecuted in a court of law. And I think you've been fairly unswerving in that. And now we've gotten the pushback in the form of Lindsey Graham, who said Sunday night on Fox News that if Trump is prosecuted as part of the Mar-a-Lago investigation, there will, quote, be riots in the streets. And that it was an interview that Donald Trump soon after shared on his platform, Truth Social. So that brings me to a little bit of a dilemma. I mean, Alicia said on this show a few weeks ago that that is probably a reality that there may well be a violent reaction. And we have to ask ourselves in a sober, serious way, is it worth it? Is it worth putting the country through that? Is that the right path forward? On the, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that argument. And maybe that's, maybe that's all that Lindsey Graham is trying to say here. On the other hand, it does kind of feel like a hostage situation where we're being told, leave my guy alone or else. Paul, where do you come down? Has Lindsey Graham's very realistic threat of violence changed any of your thinking? You know, what I didn't hear from Donald Trump was if Lindsey Graham gets indicted and prosecuted, there'll be riots in the streets. No, no one will care about that. Lindsey Graham is pathetic. First of all, he's pathetic. Now, can we reasonably expect uh, turmoil if uh, the former president, the crook, the mob boss, the Rico, the the, tra- the traitor to his country is prosecuted. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think so. So what's the alternative? Do you shrink from doing the tough work of justice? Do you shrink from restoring the very foundations of democracy that have been threatened by the criminality of this of this man, if if he's indicted and uh, um, and is convicted, do you shrink from that challenge? If we shrink from that challenge, uh, the republic is in great peril. 
And I, I don't I don't say this lightly. I don't say this with some 40,000 foot, um, you know, naive view of what our country is all about and where it is going. This is so fundamental. This is such a fundamental issue for the preservation of our democracy and for its continued development. There, I, I see no way um, to avoid doing justice in this case. And um, the, the, the legitimate forces of law enforcement um, will be prepared uh, if they need to be. Uh, it will. Is it catastrophic? Is it awful? Yes. Um, Trump will have brought it upon himself and upon the country. Uh, but we will we have survived worse and we will survive this. We haven't. I mean, think about the Civil War. We survived the Civil War. Um, we'll survive this. But this is the 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 next great test of our democracy. And uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sufficiently Lincoln-esque to, to put it into the kinds of words he would, uh, but um, we are being tested. We are in the great test of our democracy now, and we must not shrink from the duty that justice demands. Alicia, obviously you raised this as a, in a, in a I want to say a, a, a more sober and a better way than Senator Lindsey Graham did. You raised this point. A few weeks ago. And and the way you put it was, look, right after the search happened, they better have the goods because if they don't, we could well see a major violent backlash. And I think you were I think that analysis was right. Of course, now we have the virtue of three weeks of revelations in the case. And it does seem at this point that the goods were very much there. I mean, we have found out ever since that discussion, that there was a lot going on inside Mar-a-Lago and inside these documents, including significant numbers of documents that had the highest level of classification in the boxes that Donald Trump turned over. Agents found 184 unique documents, 25 marked top secret, 92 secret, 67 marked confidential. and now in the new slate of documents removed from Mar-a-Lago, we've had documents with the highest level of classification available in the U.S. government pertaining to intelligence sources that are human, meaning there are agents, there are human sources out there whose lives could be at risk, and electronic, which gets to the way we do our spy craft. This is some of the most sensitive information that exists for the U.S. government. Given all of that, and now, given Senator Graham's comments, has your thinking changed at all? No, my thinking hasn't changed. Um, my thinking hasn't changed because, uh, look, I don't know if Donald Trump has committed a crime or not. I've read everything. I keep as up to it as I can. There's all kinds of varying analyses as to whether this is prosecutorial, yeah, prosecutable, of, you know, offense, something they can prosecute. Um, nice. <laughs> just recovered. Um, and, and I don't know, and I'm not going to weigh in one way or another, but, you know, you guys mentioned that, that we are a country with law and we are a nation of laws. And that is true. But I do think the standard should be higher when the stakes are higher, which is the 
place we're at right now in consideration of whether to prosecute a former president of the United States of America. Uh, and I don't know, are we at that point? I have no idea. Look, most of the stuff is redacted. The reality, folks, is most of us will probably never know, nor should we, what was in these documents because it's classified information. We're not supposed to know. We can't know everything. People's lives are in danger when we do. Our nation can be in danger. Our defense systems can be in danger. Everyone calling for transparency. I believe the Justice Department will be as transparent as it is and can be without putting people's lives in danger. And, you know, I get really frustrated when Lindsey Graham or Don Jr. on Twitter said, you know, it should come out all unredacted. Are you stupid? Not realizing that you could be putting people's lives in danger or do you not care or, or, or do you want them to be threatened like the Florida judge who signed the affidavit was threatened. And, and it's frustrating as an American to see people with such loud voices. Lindsey Graham, I'm most upset by because I used to be a big fan of his until the last several years. I, I found him to be um, smart, amiable, not too wacko and, 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 and an honorable person and, and this statement he made, look, I don't think he was inciting violence. I, I think he was doing what I'm doing, what I was doing, which is noting this is going to be really bad. No matter, you know, if they prosecute him, no matter the evidence, it's going to be really bad. It's going to be violent. People's lives will be taken or they'll be injured. Property will be lost. And what I want to see a Lindsey Graham to do is rather than even acknowledge that that may happen, say, don't let this happen. If he's prosecuted, we need calm. If the Justice Department decides to do this, we will litigate the hell out of it. We'll discuss it. We'll fight for his innocence. But don't be violent in response. And that's what I want to see some more Republican leaders who are people I have always respected in the past, like Lindsey Graham, to start doing. You've got to start calming a nation. Stop validating their anger. I mean, what a fantastic point, because I think you really, really put your finger on the problem here. He's not inciting violence. He's just failing to do the thing that a leader should do. He, you are a member of the U.S. Senate, Lindsey Graham. If you say, hey, I have as much street cred among Republicans as anyone. See the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings if you doubt me and you doubt my Donald Trump defending bona fides. But let me tell you something. People take it down a notch. We are not going to be violent. We're not going to insurrect. We're not going to go burn down the Capitol again. We are going to take this one at a time. We'll vigorously defend everything you just said. I mean, that's that's a perfect encapsulation of what he and most Republican leaders have failed to do. The one Republican leader who has kind of tried to slow things down. Actually, there's more than one. Dan Crenshaw, the Republican congressman from Texas, no shrinking violet on the right, although he's been accused of being a rhino in his in his own primary. Uh, he's there. a traitor now, I think. Yeah, I think he's a traitor because he said, hey, it's stupid that we've somehow become the party of attacking the FBI. And Mike Pence said the same thing, although he backtracked on it later, you know, so much for uh, vice president's spinal fluid. But that is that is the key point here. And, you know, in the final analysis, I have to admit, I have to think about this one a little bit more. I, I have not entirely decided. I think I've actually straddled both sides of this issue, like John <laughs> Kerry windsurfing. I think I have I have come down on both sides of this. Yes, it's worth it. No, it's not worth it because you're right. It is, it is likely that if we go into a prosecution of Donald Trump, we will see violent consequences. On the other hand, when Americans are held hostage overseas, 
We say we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't give in to their demands because doing so invites more and more violent response in the future. And what I worry about is that 50 years ago, we were going through Watergate and people said, well, we'll never go through anything like that again. And now we are and worse. And so if we give in this time around and we don't follow the law, what are we inviting in the future for those of us, like the three of us who have kids? And on that note, we have to wrap it up. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.